Greetings, welcome to The Dividing Line. We are going to be taking uh, Zoom calls today, even though we're here on the road doing a road trip dividing line, and we already have uh, three folks lined up. I Someone asked, just asked on Twitter about a code or something. I don't have a clue, but um, Rich says he's posted everything, so I don't know. I don't call in, <laughs> so there you go. Before we start going to our callers, um, two quick things. Um, Chris, uh, Arnson contacted me today. I actually contacted Rich, but, um, we texted about it briefly. There's some King James only group out there, uh, that has put together a, um, some kind of a audio or something where they took a portion where I was talking about, uh, way back in the, oh, good grief. 1980s. Yeah, 1980s. Because he, Dennis McKenzie was an atheist, put out a, um, it was a three, it was three pieces of paper printed on both sides on a mimeograph machine. Anyone, anyone remember mimeograph machines? At least originally. And um, uh, every month he would put this, so it was a total of six pages. He would put out a publication called Biblical Errancy biblical errancy and it was just a collection of what he considered to be contradictions in the bible and i don't know if someone sent one to me brought one to me at church or something i i don't remember but i subscribed you had to subscribe to get this thing and then i would use it um even on the dividing line we were doing back then on a local radio station and i would um I wrote responses and demonstrated. In fact, some of his stuff ended up in Letters to a Mormon Elder, some of the alleged contradictions that he that he brought up. And if I recall correctly, didn't we have him on the program once? Long, long ago, we did an atheist series, which, which uh, I was like 21 or something like that. Um, but anyway, so... You know, I have subscribed to the Watchtower and Awake magazines and the Ensign of the LDS Church. And uh, I used to get, I, I used to joke that my postman must think I was a religious nut because I had all sorts of stuff coming because you got to use primary sources. You got, you've got to do your homework. You got to, got to research to respond to this stuff. Well, evidently there's a King James only group out there that took a segment where I was talking about biblical errancy, Dennis McKenzie, he eventually put a book out. It's on Amazon. I think he died. I think Rich said 2004, 2009, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, and they just took the little, 2009, they just took the little segment where I said, uh, when I subscribed to biblical errancy and cut it off, didn't give you anything else, and are presenting it to people as if that's me denying biblical inerrancy. <laughs> wow, you've got to be massively desperate and massively dishonest um, to, to, to pull a stunt like that. Because it's so easy for someone to, you know, wow, uh, just astonishing, absolutely astonishing. But there, there's... You know, the Internet has given uh, opportunity to many, many people to just lie through their teeth. And 
there you have a King James onlyist who, you know, King James only, the cult of King James onlyism is one of the most dishonest movements you'll ever encounter. And uh, there, there you go. Uh, and the other thing, real quickly, I had uh, this morning I commented on a, where'd it go? I had it right there. Um, where did it go? Well, how weird is that? Uh, you have something sitting there and then it just uh, disappears into the ether. Uh, there it is anyways. Um, I made the comment this morning. I am not sure I have seen a more deceptive abuse of church history than this one. This isn't just ignorance. This is purposely deceptive. And I was referring to, I was comment tweeting on something from Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. Catholic Answers should be ashamed of themselves. Trent Horn, you know better. I mean, I don't think Trent did this. They've got somebody... One of your guys in the Twitter department needs to be slapped around a bit because here's the statement. There is zero disagreement in the early church over whether Mary was assumed into heaven. Zero disagreement in the early church over whether Mary was assumed into heaven. Um, There is also zero disagreement in the early church over whether the Cowboys were Joseph's favorite football team. Zero disagreement. None whatsoever. Um, There is zero disagreement in the early church uh, over whether the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter argued of whether Skittles and M&Ms were their favorite snack food. There's no disagreement in the early church about any of that because those were all irrelevancies that didn't have any meaning in the early church. The same thing with the bodily assumption of Mary. And so to, to throw out the statement, there is zero disagreement in the early church over whether Mary was assumed into heaven, is asserting that there is agreement when there is nothing. Absolutely nothing. So far, I've only had one Roman Catholic who had the, the courage of his own convictions, Robertson Genesis who was willing to debate that topic. Catholic answers never will. Uh, put out there, Jimmy Aiken, if you want to defend bodily assumption of Mary? Okay. As, as, a, as an apostolic doctrine? Okay. You know, it's not going to happen. Uh, because they know. The, they, they know the truth of um, how completely non-apostolic uh, that actually is. So, amazing. Amazing stuff. Wow, we've got... Um, a bunch of folks here and I don't have anything. Well, okay. There's the chat thing. Uh, 2009 thing. It's on sermon audio. Oh, the thing. Yeah. The uh, discussion with Dennis McKenzie. Yeah. So I'm not sure who came in first or anything. Uh, if you want to, if you want to put that on uh signal or something so I can, uh, so I can see it. Um, the, the chat thing just gets buried behind other stuff. So uh, I see that one. I, I didn't know that one. Uh, so let's get to our callers here and um, talk to Waona on the subject of the canon, I think. Waona. Are you- uh, yes. Yes, yes, I'm sir. here. Hello. Okay. Uh, uh, good evening. So I wanted to ask, um, yes, on the canon, on the canon. So I've often heard you uh, state that since God inspired some books 
and not all books, that the canon automatically exists as an artifact of revelation. Uh, sorry if I phrased that wrong. So my question is more concerned with how we can have certainty that the Protestant uh, canon is correct. Uh, because I've watched, your, uh, I've watched your debate with Gary Michuta and my understanding was, the argument there was, God led the Jews to correctly identify the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament canon and lay those books up in, up in the temple. So I wanted clarity on whether our certainty is based solely on that precedent and whether the Old Testament canon was decided before the incarnation. Well, of course, the Old Testament canon was, well, when you say decided, um, again, to make sure that the standard confusion doesn't take place, and that is when people confuse the historical recognition in time with the theological reality of what God has done in inspiration. That's the main problem. If you don't make that distinction, um, then the canon becomes something that is necessarily um human oriented and human discovered and that can't be at the same time when you as, uh, affirm and, and assert that scripture is theanustos and that god holds men accountable uh, to those scriptures so you you have to make that distinction or uh absolute chaos uh, ensues so uh if if what you're asking is did Jesus and the New Testament apostles function with a uh, understandable and recognizable canon of the Tanakh, then yes, clearly they did. How else could Jesus say, you are ignorant, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God? Because the Sadducees' response to that would have been, how are we supposed to know the scriptures without an infallible canon or something along those lines? But he didn't do that. And if what you're asking is, and I didn't catch what debate you were referring to, but if what you're, what you're asking is, do we use the same methodology in the New Testament as the Old Testament? Well, both in the sense that God is the author of scripture and therefore he determines the canon by inspiring certain books and not others. And then there is this very similar period of time involved in the people of God coming to recognize what God has done, yeah, but that's not what makes it scripture. That, that, that's the important part. What, what makes something scripture is inspiration. And what people confuse is, well, I want certainty on the canon. And when, I ask, when, when people ask that, I normally say, um, so what specifically do you think needs to be added? And there's, there aren't any candidates. There just aren't. I mean, I, I know every single possible ancient writing that had ever been viewed as canonical by anybody. And I don't know of anyone today who is trying to make the argument um, that the Shepherd of Hermas or the Epistle of Barnabas should be canon scripture. I don't know anybody. And uh, the, only the only place where there's disagreement here, obviously, ever since April of 1546, is in regards to the apocryphal books. And those, those books, you know, we can get into that if that's what you're, what you're going for. But 
uh, the, those books in, in so many instances are so self-evidently secondarily secondary that I have to agree with Pope Gregory the Great and Jerome and Cardinal Jimenez and all sorts of other people down through history that recognized, as the Jews did, that they were not a part of what God had, had given to them. So uh, if, if the issue is uh, how do I have certainty based upon historical analysis of which church fathers said this and which church fathers said that and 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 even dealing with the problems that Rome has in regards to the listing of books because there is some confusion as to the comparison of the which apocryphal books are being referred to because of Greek and stuff like that um if you're talking about that or if you are talking about how can I have certainty that God has spoken and that he has just as much of an intention of making sure that I can know what it is he has said um, as he had in inspiring it in the first place. Those are two different things. One comes from accepting the promises of God, and the other comes from saying, I need to have some kind of um, external infallible authority that I can place my faith in. So what if 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 for certainty you mean what am I going to place my faith in? You can either place your faith in contradictory um, uh, councils, uh, early church fathers that had different understandings and made errors, or you can put your faith in whatever it was that Jesus felt that even the Sadducees had sufficient revelation to be able to know uh, what God had said, and that in essence. As Jesus said, have you not read what God spoke to you? And that is, have you not read what God spoke to you? And he spoke that 1,400 years earlier and held men accountable in that day for what God has spoken to them. Uh, I, I would rather put my, my faith in, in that uh, than in um, any type of reconstructed historical process that had all sorts of other things involved in uh, in that reconstruction rich you did something to me there this i um all of a sudden i'm big on my screen i'm not sure oh okay oh okay oh okay okay well uh hopefully that was helpful you said we've got someone who only has a few moments Okay, so let's let's grab Michael real quick. Michael, uh, go ahead. Well, hey, James, huge huge fan, longtime listener. Um, I've been listening to a bunch of your debates, and I'm a full five pointer. But I've a lot of people on the Armenian side keep posing this question, such as, if total gravity is true, why would God have to harden people's hearts? I understand in the situation, of, for example, Pharaoh it was more for preventing him from doing what his flesh would have wanted to do for preserving Egypt. But maybe like, for example, Matthew 13 or John 12, where it's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, where it seems to be that had not Jesus hardened their hearts, they would have believed the gospel. So I'm just curious what you would, what your um, explanation for that is, because I do have a lot of Armenian friends who are, love to hammer home that point. I'm just curious. Well, uh, hammer on that point. Um, 
it's a it, it, it's an incredibly weak point when you think about it because it, it, they're saying well uh total depravity isn't true which means man always has the ability to do all the things that scripture says he doesn't have the ability to do and then you get to a, a point where you have the relatively few places i mean there are there there are places there's judgment passages in the Old Testament where God hardens uh, the hearts of kings so that um, they and their people are destroyed. Well, what does that have to do with total depravity? What does that have to do with uh, is, is the idea that, well, God had to do that because they were actually just so good, they would have done the right thing. Uh, no, they're already under judgment, and God wants to bring about their judgment in a particular fashion um in uh, in isaiah 6 uh when isaiah is is commissioned to to go to the people i'm, I'm going to make their hearts fat and their eyes dull and and that's when isaiah says how long O lord and the only the, the, the only way that that's an issue is if you're a full-blown pelagian that thinks that people just have the capacity in of themselves to do the good and the right things uh they're they're not they're not the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And they all the uh, places where scripture says they are not able to fulfill the law of God and they are not able to do what is right before. All that stuff, you just throw that out and just assume that, well, without this hardening, then they could have done the right thing. Well, when you have specific judgment texts, um, you, you don't. We don't have judgment texts about the vast majority of times when God brought his judgment to bear. And in those instances, we all go, I guess the Arminian goes, well, yeah, they didn't choose to repent, didn't choose to do what was right before God or, or whatever else. No, we're just not given divine revelation as to when God uh, began the process of bringing judgment upon this people or or whatever else it is. We're, we're just simply not told. But we see example after example after example in the prophets, for example, of nations that are judged by God for their sin, but there's no discussion about what their capacities were or, or, or anything along those lines. So I just find it a really, um, I know the provisionists use it all the time, but I find it a really, it just seems like people who use that argument are, are not thinking about what they themselves are assuming because unless they're just going to go to the to the ultimate point of saying no um
does does that somehow mean that pagan Pilate uh, was had some kind of inherent goodness in him? Uh, maybe some prevenient grace. Maybe they're throwing a prevenient grace concept out. I I have no no idea. But the 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 fact remains that just because you in some instances are given the specifics of why God is hardening for a specific purpose doesn't mean the it doesn't then jump to the other side and that means and when he doesn't then that means people have these abilities we're just simply not told what god's purpose in the judgment of those people in that context is but we are told that anybody who makes that argument i i just want to say could you just spend a little time in jeremiah just just a few minutes because if you really want to know the, the depth of man's sin and, you know, can the leopard change his spots? Those who are accustomed to doing evil do good. Um, there's just so much. And I don't even, don't even have to get into Romans 1. I don't even have to get into uh, Romans 8 and stuff like that. It was the, it was the constant theme of the, of the prophets as well. So it just seems to me like a, like a cover to sneak some type of Pelagianism in uh, just for the fun of it. And um, um, yes, that's, that's where I would go in uh, someone trying to say, I'd say, what, what are you, are, are you saying that men do have the capacity to do what is pleasing in God's sight? They do have the capacity to submit themselves to God's law in opposition to Romans chapter eight. Is that what you're saying? Because that's the assumption that they want to work on. And on a very practical level, by the way, just in passing, you can see how George Bryson tried this in our debate in 2001. Um, it's very easy to utilize that emotionally with people uh, because we all want to believe that we have those levels of capacity and, and things like that. So on an emotional level, that that works out for them real well, too. Um, so that's how I'd respond to that. Lost internet here. Lost internet here? I can hear you now. Ha! There you go. Well, we press on because, uh, you know, uh, we, 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 can, we can put out there what we can put out there. So sorry about that, uh, um, whoever that was. Uh, I'm sorry, guys, but it, it's, it's a little bit difficult for me to see who everybody is and stuff um, uh, with what I've got in front of me. It's the first time we've tried doing it this way. So who's you got to tell me who's next. I can't, I can't figure any of that out. Okay, Lucas Roberts, which means, but by the way, when I'm talking to all of you, I have no earthly idea what your question is, topic is, so I'm flying by the seat of my pants, so there we go. And we're waiting for Lucas. There we go. Sorry about that. Hey, Dr. White. Hi. Um, question, I'm on a Twitter, see a lot of Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. I know you've You've kind of talked about Eastern Orthodox when um, Hank, the Bible man, went Orthodox, and you were lamenting the fact that there isn't a lot of 
um, we don't have a lot of apologists working on Eastern Orthodoxy. I was just curious if you're aware of anybody who is in that field. I, I know like Sola Scriptura is like a big difference between uh, Reformers and Eastern Orthodox, but is there anything else you can add to that? Well, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I had the opportunity recently and I, uh, I could pull this up, you know, but again, if you don't know what's coming and take too much time, people are watching live. I had the opportunity recently in teaching uh, church history to the um, church in Germany that actually I'll be doing again Friday. Um, they had, when the Ukrainian war started, they requested some information on that particular subject because they're very evangelistic. So they were going out and they were helping people and they wanted to know how to interact with maybe Ukrainian refugees who might be Orthodox in their understanding of things like that. And so uh, we spent a couple of weeks going over the, the primary issues. Um, it's it, again, it's a huge topic and yes, yeah, Sola Scriptura is a key issue um, but I'll just, let me just, just basically say once again, that the, the challenge that you have in dealing with now, Orthodox Twitter is different than orthodoxy. <laughs> Anything in Twitter almost is different than what it would be in real life. Um, so you have all sorts of different kinds of Orthodox people and sadly, many are nominal Orthodox. Uh, they, uh, there's forms of Orthodoxy that are very cultural, magical almost. Many Orthodox feel that there are places of energia, energy, and that you know worship and doing those types of things is, is really tapping into a form of divine energy, uh, that kind of a concept. And so there's lots of negatives along those lines and lots of legalism and and everything else that goes along with it but the best this is this is interesting i've never expressed it this way before let, let me let me see if, I, if if i can do this um the best of orthodoxy is very very different than the best of roman catholicism but what i mean by that the uh, my introduction to orthodoxy years and years ago, and if this fellow is still around because the name has escaped me and I don't have archives or don't know where the archives would be to go back far enough to find them, the my introduction to orthodoxy was some in-depth conversations with an orthodox man who also understood Reformed theology. That always helps. And uh, those those types of individuals that have a very, very serious faith um, are very different from those that have the highest commitment to the papacy, uh, the Roman Catholic sacramental system, stuff like that. Real orthodoxy is not simply popeless Catholicism, which is what most people in the West think. They think it's the same thing as Catholicism, but without a pope. That's just not, that's just not, the, not the case. Real orthodoxy 
real Orthodox people just don't even think in the same categories as we do in the West. And hence, that's the, the real difficulty in trying to help people in the West to even understand what the concerns are of real Orthodox individuals is that you're dealing with a liturgy-based um, system that answers most theological questions with forms of prayer and how we've always done things, tradition, rather than reference to some kind of creedal authority or or issues along those lines they they don't think forensically like we think in the in the west they think much more mystically um and that's what makes trying to write on the subject and even trying to engage those issues very very difficult now in my experience uh orthodox apologists tend as out of necessity to become less consistently orthodox and more like Rome as their means of defense. Um, so especially orthodox in the United States who didn't grow up in it, they're not a part of Russian orthodox, Greek, Greek orthodox, uh, Ukrainian orthodox, et cetera, et cetera, and tend to be more culturally of uh, Western, they're going to be very, very different um, than than dealing with like the gentleman that I was talking with, where I could have serious conversations and and we were able to actually, I think, come to understanding of of one another. That was that was a, a positive thing. So there are all sorts of issues about Mary. There are all sorts of issues, obviously, on the gospel. But remember, there is there is uh, I I have. I want to have hope for people who name the name of Christ, whatever um, the the name of the door of the church they go into. I want to have hope that they're actually trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And that they are just desperately inconsistent with the system that they are a part of. And in fact, I would say that nominalism, whether it's Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox or anything else is the greatest danger to all souls. Um, so, you know, people have said, well, don't you, don't you believe a Roman Catholic can be saved? Of course I believe a Roman Catholic can be saved. And I believe that there will be people who will be saved who live their entire life in the Roman Catholic system. But they are saved in spite of the Roman Catholic system, not because of it. Their faith is, is a simple faith in Christ. And they're as sheep starving in the midst of that type of a situation. And I would say I have even more hope um, in, the, in regards to the Orthodox along those lines, because I've met Orthodox who, because of the freedom to focus upon, if the, it, it's, it's, again, we don't even have the right words, but because of almost the the freedom and this see mysticism has certain meanings that i'm not even trying to tap into here but because there's a little less of the uh, dogmatic 
element attached to particular creeds, confessions, things like that within orthodoxy. I think that opens the door for people to focus upon Christ and his righteousness and union with him and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, and hence there's a, a broader possibility there that you'll have people who don't then unfortunately grab hold of the very common works oriented. And, and that's, it doesn't matter what branch you're looking at. That's the big danger. We want to be in control of our own salvation and whether you're a Protestant or Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, there's, there's ways to do that. And that's the tendency of, of, of everyone, uh, those directions. So, uh, there's just so much more. It, 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 it's a language thing. It is really, really, really a language and thought thing. And um, that's really where the challenges are. I'm being attacked by my by the, uh, thing here behind me. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a, when I hear things like this, yes. Um, okay, so hopefully that was helpful. Um, and we continue on. We do want to get to everybody. So I see a lot, a lot of people in here. I'm not sure how. I've, I have got to be done at five. Uh, well, five o'clock my time, whatever time. I've got to be done in 27 minutes. So uh, it's going to be an hour long. Well, I can see some little things, but I don't know what you mean by slide the box. I don't, I don't, I don't see that. Yeah, no. All right, so who's next? Okay, Jaden. Hi, Jaden. Hi, J hi. God bless you, Dr. White. Hi. Um, just briefly, I uh, just want to thank you for your ministry. Um, you probably had the greatest impact on my uh, journey the past three years. Um, I'm a mailman, so I've spent countless hours listening to your debates and going through your church history, um, your lecture series and all of that. So I'm very grateful. Well, thank you. And um, thank so you my for question... delivering that mail accurately. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, so my question is basically uh, this. Um, I've been following your uh, discussion on Aquinas and the great tradition. Um, and I think it's rather simple. I, I see all the red flags that you're uh, trying to call out i see um the concerns as far as far as uh from a hermeneutical uh standpoint um what would your advice be or how would you go about um if if you were going to share with someone who let's say is an rts orlando and might have direct connections with people such as the president and those who are in there what would your advice be on how to navigate this conversation with those who who from my standpoint as a student would seem like they're not so caught up in the highly intellectual aspect and might be savable. Um, <laughs> how would you, how would you go about sharing? Well, um, in that regard. Well, historically, this is not the first time that there has been this kind of uh, development of neo-scholasticism amongst the reformed. It, it's not the first time. It won't be the last time. And uh generally it, it ends up as is always the case amongst the reformed with various forms of division and uh, uh creation of new denominational patterns and stuff like that and and uh sort of like at the end of the 19th century well late 19th century with um the controversy in england and the in the church of england and uh 
Newman and Salmon and all those people are involved with all, all that kind of it, it's happened over and over again and it will it will continue happening. And so I'm I'm the I um my concern is is not the Christianity of any of these individuals. Um if if they make the profession of faith, I, I accept that profession of faith. And on 99.5% of everything else, we would probably answer questions in almost the exact same fashion. Um, what I am concerned about is that ev eventually um, individuals influenced by this perspective will encounter those who will be seeking to move them farther. Now, there, there may be, I, I have my suspicions about certain of the main leaders going much farther themselves eventually. But even if they don't, even if the major names pretty much stay where they are, um, what happens is people that have been influenced by a, a perspective that uh, invests an imbalanced amount of authority in a source outside of scripture, whether that is, um, you know, the, the concept that to have meaningful exegesis, you need to start with uh, the Council of Nicaea, rather than meaningful exegesis will lead you to the conclusions of the Council mm -hmm. of Nicaea. Um, people that influenced along those lines will encounter people who will push them farther uh, outside of uh, Reformed Baptist, outside of Presbyterian, uh, into other forms of uh, not just liturgical churches, but churches that have a lesser commitment to the full sufficiency of the of the scriptures. And I could see us losing uh, a portion of the next generation of what could have been strong leaders in our own uh, group uh, to that kind of thing. It, 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 it happens all the time. So if you're talking with individuals, um, I'm not worried about quote unquote, losing them for eternity. But what I would like to do is, uh, raise questions in their minds about the relationship of the authority of scripture to anything outside of that. And just to make sure in my conversations that the many straw men, and there are a lot of them, um, are not putting off so much smoke that they can't really see what the actual issues are. So in other words, uh, if they make some comment about, well, I'm just, I'm just so glad that I'm being taught that it's it's more than just me and my Bible under a tree. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, if anyone said that to me, I would say, did you ever actually think it was that? I I mean, uh no one, no one is denying the importance of the church, of the spirit, of confessionalism, any of these things. But what we are saying is that anything that is going to be actually uh, sanctifying, edifying, and beneficial to the church 
in her understanding of scripture was already delivered to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Because to see, if, if that's really the dividing line. It, because if people are saying, no, the apostles didn't have everything that we actually need today. The, the spirit has been active in giving us something more. If what you mean by something more is that we can benefit from uh, the conclusions of the battles that have been fought before, well, obviously, we're not talking about reinventing the, the wheel every single generation. But when you look at the results of those battles, do the results themselves take a quasi or in reality a religious authority position that exists now alongside scripture. So, you know, if someone says to me, um, you know, uh, Thomas is the final leg in a 1200 year period of development. And now we have the real orthodox doctrine of the Trinity in Thomas. And uh, um, Augustine didn't have that. Athanasius didn't have that. Tertullian didn't have that. Paul didn't have that. Now we've got a problem. Now we have a serious, serious, serious problem. Uh, because we are basically saying that the once for all delivered to the saints' faith wasn't really delivered apostolically but a process of development started and now you're starting to now it's starting to sound a little bit like john henry cardinal newman Mm -hmm. uh at that point and that's where the real the real issue i think comes in so encouraging someone to be a strong student of scripture and encouraging someone um to recognize what these key issues are that to me would be the the primary thing to keep uh to keep in mind got it yeah and that's that's what i had noticed too because i i haven't heard you ever say not to read aquinas it's been more so um when you get interaction from the other side um why are you quoting aquinas rather than saying aquinas's conclusions are coming are derived from and in um aligned with scripture right that's not coming from you know what they're saying that's my concern too I, I hope when you watch the video, if you don't mind, that I, I had to turn around and close the window behind me because it's starting to rain. So I was getting oh. rain. So, but no, um, yeah, these are these are times to be thinking very, very clearly. And when we think clearly on that subject, um, that's really what it what it's going to boil down to. So, um, but stay far, stay firm, stay focused, and uh, uh, God will get us all through this. And we, uh, from my perspective, um, I. Continue to pray that God will keep me from viewing even the leaders on the other side the way they clearly already view me. Yeah. Only by his grace. Mm-hmm. All righty. Absolutely. Thank you very okay. much. I look Thank forward you, to sir. seeing you at the conference. <laughs> All righty. God bless. God bless. Um, so I think from what I'm seeing here, hola. Are you there, Ola? And if I just jump up and disappear out of the screen, um, there are a couple of the windows that are open, and we've got a rainstorm coming in. So I just, we're live. <laughs> we are on the road. We, we, we press forward. Ola, are you there?
Do, 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 do. Hola, hola, hola. Anybody? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's it's still it still looks like it's uh, uh, muted, at least on according to mine. Um, there, unmuted. Hola, are you there? All right, let's. Well, okay. How about Paul? Could we? G'day, Doctor Y. How you going? Oh, I think I know who this is. Hey, that's a, that's a privilege to, that that you know my that you know my voice. Uh, well, well, I, not, not so much your voice. It's just when you when you post every Saturday that it's the Lord's Day, holding up your Bible on public transport, <laughs> and you demonstrate that you can clean up well. Um, you know, you're not wearing just a t-shirt or something like that. You're looking pretty spiffy. Um, then, yeah. That's that's how I remember. Doc, that is an honor to hear from you. Thank you very much. I do try to put my best effort into observing the Lord's Day every morning prayer on uh, on Sundays, um, which it is objectively Sunday because the Australian time zones are, in fact, canonical across the world. Um, sorry right. to everyone else who keeps accusing right. me of being, being a Seventh-day Adventist. Anyway, anyway, right. uh, I shared your dismay about that Catholic Answers article on how the whole church uh, uh, did not dispute the Assumption of Mary. And I think you saw my tweet where I said, well, Ma no one disputed that Mary had a Pokemon collection either, which has about the, the same right. power, has about the no, same I was just All of us were sitting there going, well, what example can I use to demonstrate the foolishness of this? Because yeah. it it's just... For, for, you know, I teach church history, and and to hear someone say that just makes me go, you you don't respect church history. You don't respect those who came before us to to try to cram into, um, for some of them voluminous writings, a belief that plainly they did not operate on and did not share and did not have. That is that's abusive, um, and it's it's something that should be repented of. Yeah, I have to. I have to agree to an extent. I think there's a good degree where some of them are genuinely, uh, honestly mistaken. But I think it is getting to a point where they've they've seriously got to see at least in the back of them, at least in the back of their mind, that this is special pleading. But um, I wanted to ask that, given the the scale of this special pleading, and especially in recent days and weeks, because um, I think ever since uh, Dr. Gavin Altman's video on the assumption, this stuff has really started to kick off even further. Lots more. Because it's kind of like there's kind of like waves that happen every few months of certain topics and discussions on Protestants, Roman Catholics, authors that get popularity. Um, and this latest one, the Assumption of Mary, has really just shown uh, as the the greatest display uh, yet of this amazing special pleading, where they'll say on one hand copious patristic citations against say Iconodulia, oh those don't count, and this later council does. But then uh, on the but then on the other hand, uh, this barely nothing before, say, the fourth or fifth century and the assumption, oh, yeah, we can still establish a consensus. And it is getting to the point with me as well that it really is starting to drive my head in. I like to think I'm well learned on this. But even then, I'd like to I'd like to ask your your very uh, long, long aged wisdom of how are the what do you think are the best ways of countering like whether it be rhetorical tactics or intellectual but i guess particularly rhetorical because that is where a lot of this goes um such tactics of getting back to 
and really clearly exposing the nature of this kind of special pleading, um, especially as it relates to certain issues of presuppositions and consistency with that. What do you, what do you think are the best ways to really just, just make it clear to everyone, perhaps even uh, the interlocutor, the Roman Catholic themselves, that, look, you're, you're, you're making up your standards as you go? I, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, with you, I don't know that uh, there is a, any particularly efficient way to deal with any particular person who starts off with full submission of their mind to the ultimate authority of the Roman Magisterium. Um, I, I, I know that over the years, I will encounter people who will say, you know, 15, 15 years ago, um, I, just, I just hated you. And I, I hated you because uh, I listened to your debates on Roman Catholicism. I just thought you were so wrong and you're leading people astray. Um, but that was 15 years ago. And since then, this is what has happened. And, and I wasn't necessarily central to what caused them to start realizing what was going on. But the seed had been planted. The 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 they all they always knew that there were other people out there who were providing an answer. And what that would mean is they wouldn't have to jettison the Christian faith. There were Christians out there that had been saying this stuff for a long, long time. And so I'm not nearly as interested these days in the never-ending dialogues i'm just i don't know if it's just simply age or my focus is elsewhere um but i've just i would just simply say that i have demonstrated for many roman catholics that you can that you must deal with church history and this is what i was saying to the other guy you must deal with church history in a fair fashion. And so I just give examples. Um, I have gone through, you know, we do story time with Uncle Jimmy once in a while. We, we go through all sorts of stuff. You know, we've walked through uh, the ascension of Isaiah and we've read this stuff and, and the Protevangelium of James. And, and instead of just doing the, let's be honest, surface level Catholic answer stuff, where you know jurgens level type stuff you actually read it and you actually put it in its context and you actually demonstrate its connections to uh proto-gnosticism and stuff like that and we've also done stuff where we've walked through the epistle to diagnetus and clement and ignatius and demonstrated we can allow the early church fathers to be the early church fathers and then you combine that with all sorts of seeking to handle the text of scripture uh, rightly. I mean, let's face it, the vast majority of Roman Catholics who go to mass get a 10, 15 minute little sermonette that wouldn't be enough to, to provide a, a true sheep of Christ, you know, a, a single sip of water as far as nutrition goes. Um, and so they, they hear, I'll give you an example. Uh, what year was that? It, uh, I it was one of the years, I think it was the year 
that I debated Mitch Pacwa on the paper, on the uh, priesthood. And I, I did a debate with a Muslim, I think, that year. Who was it? Chris Arnzen would remember. Anyway, and before the debate's going to start, I look down, and here's a whole row right down on the front of little Roman Catholic ladies that were at the debate with Mitch Pacwa. And they've come to my debate with a Muslim or whoever, whoever it was. And somebody went up to them and, and said, so what, what are you doing here? You know, um, this is, you were against this guy, <laughs> you know, at the, the last debate. Oh, but we just, we just love to hear him speak. And, and he, he knows the Bible so mm -hmm. well. And, you know, and the, the fact is a lot of Roman Catholics recognize that the apologetics that we do is significantly different than the apologetics that they hear. And the way we handle scripture is so much more in depth than what they get uh, within the Roman communion. And so if we believe that the Lord has his people and that he has his elect people and he's going to draw to himself, you, you give, you give, the spirit, everything the spirit can work with and trust the Lord from there. And I've seen so many people who've come to faith and found peace and, and, um, and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying that the dialogues are necessarily uh, wrong or something like that. I, I just, I just think that very often they end up pandering toward um, our desire to feel like we're right and they're wrong and i've proved it and so on and so forth i guess and, i'm kind of uh, thinking of the lay person who's listening as well like the people who really get caught up in this stuff really trying to get to them the one who's the those who are really important to reach not simply you know just other apologists and that yeah 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 um you know i i i don't want to say that i'm not concerned about roman catholic apologists um and and in the past I probably wasn't nearly as much as I should have uh, been. And I've tried to um, fix some of that. Uh, I think once I started, especially meeting with, with the Muslims I was going to be debating, I, I saw the, the real value of that, the necessity of that. It, it makes for a different debate. But at the same time, if we're looking at who we're trying to reach, in the debate itself, I have to keep the whole audience in mind and not just the, the single individual person that I'm, that I'm talking to. And um, uh, it should always, that, that, that engagement should never be something that ends up creating spiritual damage in our own lives. And I've, I've unfortunately, I've seen lots of people that that does happen. Uh, it, 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 it becomes imbalanced and we have to be, we have to be really careful about that. We really do. So, um, Fair Brother, enough. I appreciate Thank that. I've got, I've, I've got uh, one, uh, one more here. Are we going to try for Ola again? Are we? I think his mic's out. Okay, so where are we going? All right, Rob, you're probably going to be the last one in. We got about three and a half minutes, so go for it. Hi, Doctor White. Can you hear me? I can. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I, you were here in Montana and Frenchtown last year, if you can remember that. Yep. It was really hot. Yep. We met. 
Um, yes, yes, it was it was ridiculously hot on that trip. <laughs> yes, especially for Montana. Um, I also wanted to tell you that I'm the one who told you I'm one of the candidates to be the next algo because I've listened to every single divide line. Okay, I do um, remember that. Yes. Uh, okay, so my question is, and I don't know if it's a clear question or not, but it's based upon the last sermon you did on covenant theology or baptism. Um, baptism mainly, you started to touch upon Jeremiah 31. Um, and so my question is an objection that usually is raised from the other side, the pedo Baptist side. Um, essentially, it goes like this. Um, Jeremiah 31 is putting put the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant in contrast, not the new covenant with the Abrahamic covenant in contrast, because, because the context of Jeremiah 31 says the, that the covenant that he will make is not the covenant that he made with the people when he led them out of, uh, by the hand out of the land of Egypt. So it's clearly in the context of Jeremiah 31 is the Mosaic Covenant. So then for the Paedo-Baptist, the Mohammed Covenant becomes a paradigm for the New Covenant. Um, and that's why they can say that the New Covenant includes your children because the Abrahamic Covenant was a covenant of grace. So I, I don't know what the answer... But that doesn't, but that, that is, that doesn't change the, 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 the key issue of Hebrews 8 and its apologetic application to... Uh, the Hebrews at that time, and that is the supremacy of what they have in Christ is a supremacy that God brings about by by the reality that all those that are in the new covenant. And if the point is baptism is a sign of the new covenant, so who's in the new covenant? So whether they're contrasting with Moses or Abraham or whatever. The reality is that in the new covenant, which we're in now, all, all of them, from the least to the greatest of them, know God. There is not a priest class that's telling them this is how you're supposed to know God. Um, all their sins have been forgiven. So the um, what the people are being called back to, Hebrews is an apologetic book, what the people are being called back to, um, no longer has any validity to it under what they what these persecuted Christians now have the new covenant. Their sins are forgiven. They all know God. That's the nature of the new covenant, and therefore, the sign of that new covenant is to be given to those who experience all those things. So it's it's not meant to be given in hope that someday they might experience this. It is given to those who are in the new covenant who have experienced this. And so it's not just a matter of, well, no, yeah, mosaic, ooh, uh, but we've got the Abrahamic. Again, these are all categories that the New Testament writers know absolutely nothing of. And that is, you know, my, my argument has been that Calvin uh, developed this concept for other reasons and if you apply the same exegetical standards that he utilizes on so many other issues to this issue, his position does not, does not stand uh, firm. And that's, that's the issue. But uh, it, it's, it's not just a matter of what it's being contrasted with. It's what it actually says of itself. And if you practice paedobaptism, then you, in essence, are saying that for this person, we're going to give them the sign of a covenant 
and, and this is why consistently um, a lot of Presbyterians go this direction. Well, a lot of people have gone this direction in the past, and that is you sort of have to believe that if you've given that sign, this child is going to be saved. You are by that, by that insisting that your child is a covenant child and is in the new covenant and therefore is going to be saved. And that's why they will say, and that's why we have to excommunicate them afterwards. But the problem is they were never truly saved in the first place, unless you, you know, try to grab hold of an Augustinian understanding or something like that of a temporary justification without the gift of uh, perseverance. And it gets quite complicated after that point. Um, and us silly Baptists, we go, you know, you would really avoid a lot of problems here if you just started with the New Testament and uh, thanked God for Brother John Calvin, but recognized that he lived in a particular period of time. And there was a particular reason why he wanted to maintain infant baptism, which had been brought over from the previous system, shall we say. So anyway, so that's the issue. The issue is Hebrews 8. They all know all their sins are forgiven. Those are people that receive, those are people in the new covenant. So, Amen. so thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. Well, that didn't work too badly, Rich. We got to, got to figure out some way. I mean, I can see it happened more than once. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm literally doing this through my phone. So, uh, but I've got a 5G signal here. So there you go. I, I mean, when I put my cursor on people's things up here, I can see a little, I can see a little bit more, but we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It, it, it worked well. So indeed. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, the plan right now, let's see, what is today? Today is Tuesday. Um, I, I think, I think Thursday is going to work out. Um, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. We'll, everybody will let you know on the app and, um, uh, heading home next week and, uh, only home for less than two weeks. Hopefully my daughter will have my, uh, grandson, uh, during that time period. And then back out on the road, be seeing a lot of you folks heading back to, uh, Washington, DC, uh, sneak in, sneak out. Hope I survive. Um, and the G3 conference, and then on the way back, uh, teaching early church history at Grace Bible Theological Seminary, Conway, Arkansas, and uh, all sorts of fun stuff along the way. So your continued prayers, support needed. Thank you for watching the program today. Great questions. We'll see you next time. God bless.